you please uh, bow your head as we pray? Thanks, Father, for the truth of what we've just been partaking of in song, the truth of the glory of the cross, the truth of the Lord's table. Thank you, Father, that um, you did for us what we were incapable of doing for ourselves. That Jesus, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus, into this world to die for us, to rise again in triumph, um, to call us into a personal relationship with yourself, to empower us, to live in us and through us, and one day to establish that righteous reign on this earth through Jesus and then all of eternity. Um, we'll celebrate the truth of the cross and the resurrection. A message, Father, that our world needs to hear. We pray for our, our country, Father, as we're in the midst of this uh, another presidential election. We pray for our president and many people in, in power who are sick and we pray for their healing, Father, in the midst of, of maybe their sickness to see you and to um, trust you, Father. We pray, Lord, for uh, uh, as a Supreme Court nominee and all that goes on and the impact on our country. We pray, Lord, that uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, um, even in our own flock here, our congregation, the, the challenges of life that hit us, we pray for health, for wholeness, we pray, Lord, for um, your ministering grace as we're hit with many challenges, relationally, financially, physically, health, um, that, Father, our eyes would be focused on you that um, we would walk by faith and not by sight. And so, Father, thank you for um, what you're doing and continuing to do in the life of this church and this body, blessing us in so many ways. And we're grateful, Father. Um, continue to lead us for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, last week... I begin my sermon, if you were here, or you listed online, with kind of a 35,000-foot level of, uh, of an overview, a little bit of uh, Old Testament life, of Old Testament history, how, um, how it was all culminated with God's plan, with the new covenant, uh, and God's uh, desire to bring about His eternal salvation into this world. God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, this ragtag bunch of uh, slaves, he um, organized them and constituted them as his chosen people, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. These are my people, you are my people, my own unique possession. And he blessed them by giving them the law, the expression of his heart, the expression of his character. 
You are my people, and this is my heart. This is who I am. This is the law. And Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do this in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statues, and they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as Jehovah, our God, wherever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? All those nations are going to look at you and say, Man, what a great God, because look at the law that He's given you. And the people said, as it's recorded in, oops, I didn't pass that on, did I? And, and the people said, as it's recorded in, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, all the people answered together and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we'll do it. It didn't last, did it? Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. And Israel forgot God and his laws. They turned their back on him, and the inevitable judgment fell. Moses had written in Deuteronomy 30, as we saw, I put before you life and death. Choose life and live. And they chose death. Now, as I begin today, I want to continue that 35,000-foot level. But um, instead of continuing with the history of Israel, I'm going to ask you to indulge me a little bit this morning, and I'm going to do something that I rarely do, but once every year or two, uh, I, I'll, I'll do this. Kind of give a little history lesson, a little bit of a history lesson of the United States. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, if you're watching online, typically I would say open your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 7, and we would start working our way again through that passage of Scripture. But I'm going to take a step back uh, this morning and share again a little bit of a broad perspective, and I want us to start back about 200 years ago, in fact, exactly 200 years ago, 1820. What's happening in America in 1820. Well, you rarely read this in history books today, unfortunately. But something that was called the Second Great Awakening was, um, was uh, rapidly going through our country. It started in around 1800, and for that 20 years, then on into the 1820s, there was a movement of God in this country, a powerful movement of God. It was an awakening, a spiritual awakening, on into the, even the 1830s. Uh, those later years, uh, the fires of revival fl uh, flamed by uh, a revivalist by the name of Charles Finney. But it had a profound impact on our nation. Hundreds of thousands of people came to Christ. Uh, society was reformed in positive ways. Crime, lawlessness was diminished. Benevolent societies uh, started all throughout this country. Uh, there was amazing um, spiritual um, 
awakenings taking place. 600 new colleges were started by, by Christians for the education of young people all across this country. The modern overseas missionary movement started and missionaries were being sent out. Profound impact. It reshaped this fledgling country in those years, the Second Great Awakening. Now, on the heels of this Second Great Awakening, a young aristocratic Frenchman, um, a social scientist, was sent here from France to study our uh, prison system. And in 1831 and 32, this young Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country, but one of the first things that he noticed, and it was immediately impactful on him, was how religious Americans were, how spiritual-minded they were. And in 1835, he wrote his two-volume massive work that described democracy in America. That's what it was entitled. And he writes about the religiosity of Americans. This is in part what he wrote. In the United States, the sovereign authority is religious. There is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. And there can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature than that its influence is powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation of the earth, on, uh, on the earth. De Tocqueville traveled across the United States, profoundly impacted by what he was seeing. The Second Great Awakening had this massive effect on the soul of America, and it impacted homes, it impacted schools, educational systems, it impacted the legal systems of our day. America, you could say, was clearly a Christian nation empowered somehow by God's divine grace. My, have we fallen away. By the way, de Tocqueville also wrote this. I do not know if the people of the United States would vote for superior men if they ran for office, but there can be no doubt that such men do not run. And if you happen to watch the debacle called a presidential debate Tuesday, it certainly lends credence to de Tocqueville's statement in 1835. So what's happened to our country? What's gone on in the last 150, 200 years? Why are we in the mess we're in? Let me just summarize some things real briefly. First thing that has to be mentioned is the evil of slavery. As the um, revival fires were um, burning up this country in, in fervor for, for God, the fact of the matter was 18% of our population was still enslaved. The evil of slavery was well entrenched. Second thing I want to mention is what took place about 25 years after de Tocqueville wrote his um, work uh, lauding the 
the spirituality and moral su supremacy of America. 1859, Charles Darwin published his Origin of the Species. And the theory of evolution spread its evil. Third thing I want to mention, two years after Darwin published The Origin of the Species in 1859, this country is embroiled in a civil war. The likes of which I don't know if we've ever recovered from. Uh, you talk about PTSD, a whole nation had PTSD. The fourth thing I want to mention <coughs> is that in the midst of all this happening in our country, German enlightenment was uh, finding new legs here in America. Uh, higher uh, enlightenment, human reasoning, certainly fanned by Darwinianism. 1848, the German Karl Marx writes his Communist Manifesto an enlightened society. 30 years after Karl Marx writes his Communist Manifesto, Julius Wellhausen, another German, um, writes his theories of documentary hypothesis. This idea of, of taking the Bible and through higher criticism, you can begin to dismantle the Bible, dismantle God, in fact, you really don't need God. There's this convergence going on with, with um, uh, Darwinianism and, and um, these ideas of, of human reasoning and, and enlightenment that um, is, again, impacting the United States. God and his moral objectives, his moral values, his moral absolutes were becoming increasingly irrelevant. The idea of a higher moral law, of a natural law sourced in God, written on the human hearts, that this absolute truth that would have a profound impact in people's lives that, that de Tocqueville wrote about in the 1830s, it's now all beginning to be questioned and go away. God is irrelevant. His laws, his moral directives could be replaced by an ever-evolving human reasoning. Um, the world is a mess. And it was, again, impacting everything in our society and our culture. Educationally, John Dewey, the founder of modern education, held tightly to Darwinian thinking evolutionary thought. Man was autonomous. Dewey wrote, man does not need a higher power to direct him. There's no higher authority. And John Dewey, the father of modern education, wrote his first work, The School and Society, in 1899. Eventually he became, by the way, one of the signers of the, the Humanist Manifesto in, eight, in 1933. He held a strong um, influence in our educational system. 
It was infiltrating our legal system. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., he was a, a giant of American jurisprudence, an avowed atheist, very influential. In 1881, he wrote his famous book, Common Law, The Common Law. He taught at Harvard Law School. And in 1902, he was appointed to the Supreme Court, where he presided for more than 30 years. Extremely influential, extremely powerful, the father of legal realism, and Hills, Holmes's great mission was to separate all concepts of morality and ethics from law. Because there is no God, there is no moral, natural law, and if there's no God, then he's not written anything on our hearts, and man can figure it out by himself. An atheist through and through, a devoted follower of Charles Darwin, and the impact on the legal system was profound. Wasn't a surprise then that a philosopher, a German philosopher again, by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, comes along at the end of the 19th century and coins the concept, God is dead. 65 years after de Tocqueville wrote his Democracy in America and talked about a Christian nation, God was now dead in America. Of course, that impact of that philosophy, that God is dead philosophy, uh, was devastating on American society as you go into the 20th century. Margaret Sanger propagated her eugenics, started her first clinic in 1916 that became Planned Parenthood. World War I, World War II, need we go on? If there is no sovereign absolute, no divine laws govern his creation, then a people is left with the same predicament that ancient Israel was left in, as we saw in the book of Judges. Everybody just does what is right in their own eyes. Yale Law professor Arthur Leff, in 1979, did a series of lectures at Duke University that you can still read today, still having an impact. Arthur Leff was in an intellectual crisis, apparently. He was a, also an atheist. Um, no time for God, but his intellectual crisis, as he shared it in his lecture series at Duke University in 1979, was, but where does that leave us? And he, he talked about in his lecture, the grand says who? The grand says who? This is right. Says who? This is wrong. Says who? Abortion is right. Abortion is wrong. Says who? Homosexuality is wrong. Says who? Homosexuality, homosexuality is right. Says who? And in his lectures, he honestly 
wrestles with this idea that uh, where, where is this grand says who? He put it this way in his lecture. I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete transcendent and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. I also want to believe, and so do you, he said, in no such thing. But rather that we are wholly free, not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves, individually and as a species, what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us, he said, is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free at the same time. That is, at the same time to discover the right and the good, to discover the right and the good, the findable absolutes apart from ourselves. But we also, he said, desperately desire to create it. Man is in a dilemma. And at the end of his lecture, Leff, again being a secular atheist, concluded, it looks as if we is all we have. We is all we have. 1991, President George H.W. Bush nominates Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. And in a hotly debated, contested nomination, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, Democratic Senator Joe Biden, who opposed Clarence Thomas, wrote in a newspaper article that good natural law is not, it's not static. It's not a set of timeless truths, but rather, he said, an ever-evolving body of ideals that changes to permit government to adjust to new social challenges and economic circumstances. In other words, a nation's laws, a nation's laws are not based on timeless absolutes, but on the ever-changing social mores of the day. What's right today might not be right tomorrow. After all, who says? Relativism was reigning supreme. Fifty years ago, Francis Schaeffer was absolutely right when he said, our country is under the wrath of God. You and I live in a post-Christian world because man is turned from God. There are hungers on every side. There is death in the polis. There is death in the in the city. Now was this not what the Apostle Paul was writing about in the early chapters of the book of Romans? Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, the decline and, and fall of humanity, spiritual stages of decline that he mentions in, in these chapters. Stage 1, idolatry. There is, a, there is a, uh, a view that we don't need God. 
For even though we, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. A turning of ba one's back from God. Idolatry. Second stage. Immorality. Lust-driven sensuality, sexual perversions, all sense of, of decorum sexually is thrown off. Whatever you want to imagine, you can. We read in verse 26 and 27 of Romans 1, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of a woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Idolatry leads to immorality, moral perversions in a society. Third stage, anarchy. Verse 29, 31 of Romans 1, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. There are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You've got anarchy reigning. Idolatry, immorality, anarchy, and the fourth stage, Paul says, is judgment. The judgment of God falls. Chapter 2, verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, it's doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their own hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thought, thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The Jews had the written law. The divine creator, he, he, he codified it, he gave it to Israel. There, what nation is there that has such a wonderful God like this God who gives them this wonderful law and they were incapable of obeying it? The non-Jews, the Gentiles, they had the law of God written in their hearts, in their conscience, created in the image of God. They, they naturally, instinctively could understand the character of God. And they said, no, thank you. We prefer this, this naturalistic, secularistic, Darwinian thinking that says, we are at the center of it all. We don't need you, God. And so without God, without his moral compass for mankind, all is lost. Make no mistake. 
the wages of sin is death. In his book, The End of Christendom, Malcolm Muggridge makes some powerful observations. He writes, I conclude that civilizations, like every other human creation, wax and wane. By the nature of the case, there can never be a lasting civilization any more than there can be a, a lasting spring or, or lasting happiness in an individual life or lasting stability in society. It's in the nature of man and of all that he constructs to perish, and it must be so. The world is full of the debris of past civilizations. And then he continues. Whatever their ideology may be, from the Garden of Eden onward, such dreams of lasting felicity have cropped up and no doubt always will. But the realization is impossible for the simple reason that a fallen creature like man, though capable of conceiving perfection and aspiring after it, is in himself and in his works forever imperfect. And thus he's fated to exist in the no man's land between the perfection he can conceive and the imperfection that characterizes his own nature and everything that he does. The fact of the matter is, fallen man is incapable of following the law of God, his moral absolutes. Because man is born a sinner. Man is predisposed because he's born a sinner, predisposed to walk away from God. If the history of our country tells us anything, it tells us that man's moral inability and movement away from God, no different than ancient Israel or any other society, will eventually fall back into, we'll do what is right in our own eyes. Enslave a whole race of people? It's economically good sense. kill 63 million little babies, unborn babies, it too makes economically good sense. The heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. Now, turn me to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about lusting or coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Paul is saying, it was God's law that revealed his perfect direction. I wouldn't have understood what departed from God if it wasn't for this, the moral absolutes of God being revealed, either written in the law code or written in man's heart. I, Paul writes, verse 9, was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. 
I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is an absolute moral standard. There is a grand says who. And it's good and it's righteous. But verse 13, Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Oh no, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The law said, stop. <laughs> Don't do this. Do this. And it only energized that which was in man, sin. And Paul said, I found myself in a hopeless situation for I was incapable of following the moral absolutes of God. Until the problem of sin is dealt with, generation after generation, century after century, nation after nation is going to be lost. Because Paul's saying the moral law code that God has written, that God has imprinted in everybody born in this world, all it does is reveal how hopelessly lost mankind is. Because smack dab in the word sin is the letter I. The problem is me. Revivals and awakenings may delay the inevitable. It was a powerful second great awakening 200 years ago. But eventually, judgment comes. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. It's me. It's sin in me. But Romans is a book about good news the gospel I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ Paul wrote in chapter 1 because it is the power of God that brings deliverance salvation Jesus Christ provided the solution for the problem of sin to turn God's wrath away from sin that's what Romans is all about God sent his son into the world Jesus was the perfect law keeper. He was the perfect God-man. And he sacrificed himself. He paid for our sins on the cross to offer us a free gift, his righteousness in exchange of our sinfulness. And at the moment of faith, the free gift is offered and received by faith. God looks now upon that sinner and declares him to be righteous and acquitted of all crimes a free gift that's called justification romans 1 through 4 
But not only that, he places within us his Holy Spirit. His very presence, his righteous presence is within us. And he says, not only will I declare you right, I will make you right. I'll I'll help you live out righteousness in this fallen world. As you trust me and the the power and the grace that I'll give you moment by moment. And that's Romans 6, 7, and 8. You're declared right, and now you can live right. And you can make a profound impact in the darkness of this world because of my presence within you. Sanctification truth. And folks, while we can exercise our right to vote, and we need to, if you're not registered to vote, October 13th is the deadline. Go register to vote. It's a freedom we have. This is an important election. We have that right to do it, the right to engage in the political and public arena. Elections have consequences. But our primary means of changing a society deals with the issue that lies within the heart of man. Sin, separation from a holy God and his righteous and moral absolutes. Our calling as believers in Jesus Christ is to, as we live with one foot as a citizen of this country, we also live as a citizen of heaven. As Augustine wrote about the the city of man and the city of God. But the primary means of changing a society, let me just lay it out straight, is evangelism. (laughs) Go into the world, Jesus says. Proclaim this good news message because the only answer to the sinfulness of the heart and the propensity of that sin to move us away from God, whether it's an individual, a family, or a society, a whole country, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the hope for this nation. Yes, go vote, (laughs) but no election result is going to change the heart of humanity. But God's people, we can go out into this world and proclaim that good news. We can make a profound difference. It happened 200 years ago in the Second Great Awakening. Yes, it didn't last. We need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus deals with the human heart. Can you legislate morality? Well, sure, you can put, we can elect good officials that'll have good laws and we can keep people under constraints, but you ultimately cannot legislate morality in the human heart. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so this morning I praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It truly is the power of God to deliver an individual, a family, a society, a nation. Do not think that if things don't go well in this election year the way you want it to go, that the power of God has been unplugged. In fact, it'll be greater than what maybe we would ever imagine. Oh, there's nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for 
your kindness and grace. As we see the, the, the grand movements and epochs of time in this nation and the, the, the historical waxing and waning of, of, um, of truth in this country, we know that the only hope which has been the only hope in this nation, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we proclaim it boldly, thankfully, freely, and hopefully continue to be freely. And even if we're shackled to proclaim it freely, then may we boldly continue to do so, even at the expense of life and limb. We thank you for Jesus, who we have celebrated today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.